Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Brendan McKeever, lecturer in sociology at Birkbeck, uh, University of London. He's the author of the new book, Anti-Semitism and the Russian Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. So thanks very much for being with us today, Brendan. Thanks so much, Max, for, for inviting me to do this. Uh, it's, it's really great to be talking to you. Brilliant. So first uh, question, how did you come to write this book? So I guess there's two tracks that led me in the direction of this book. The first one is, is the academic track. I did my undergraduate at the University of Glasgow, and I was in the Department of Sociology, and Glasgow is quite well known for its sociology, and in particular for 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 its focus on racism studies. And the department used to be headed by Robert Miles, who's a well-known sociologist of, of racism studies, who played a kind of key role in coining the concept of racialization. But by the time I came along, Miles had gone, and Satnam Verdi uh, was, was leading the work on racism studies. And... Satnam taught me a kind of version of racism studies which absolutely included anti-Semitism within that field, which I subsequently came to learn is not is is not the most common way of conceiving the issue. So there was there was a kind of sociological interest in racism studies, always with anti-Semitism in the room, as it were. And then at the same time, I also undertook 
um, modules on East European history. And Glasgow, even more so perhaps in sociology, has been renowned for its focus on what was then called Soviet studies and is now Russian and East European studies. Has a very, it had a very famed institute for the for, for, for Soviet studies. So when it came to do the PhD and kind of postgraduate work, and I, and I, and I stayed at Glasgow, these two themes were really brought together. Uh, you know, the study of the kind of Soviet context and the sociological framing of the issue of racism and anti-Semitism. Uh, and, you know, I have to say it was it was Satnam, Satnam Verdi, that, that suggested to me that, that, I, that I bring these two issues together and think about anti-Semitism as a form of racialization in the, in the crucible of the Russian Revolution. Um, and then at that point, um, I had these discussions with Terry Cox, uh, who's a professor of, of, of East European studies at, in Glasgow, and Satnam and Terry became the supervision team for the PhD project. So there's a, there's a kind of academic focus on the Soviet context and racism studies, which encompassed anti-Semitism as well, I guess, which, which took me in this in this direction, which I appreciate is maybe a little bit unusual. I mean, I didn't come at this from a Jewish studies perspective, for example, or even a kind of sole focus on on Russian history. I mean, I'm actually not a historian in the formal sense. Uh, the book is really a work of historical sociology. So that's the first track, the, the academic. And I guess the second one was a more sort of biographical path, which, which is to say that, I mean, I, I grew up in a family of of socialists and anti-racists um, from various kind of radical leftist traditions, mostly Trotskyist. So these debates were sort of on the ki- We had them at the kitchen table, like before I went to university. Uh, the, by the time I got to university and became interested in these issues, I could kind of turn to the bookshelf that was in the living room. I mean, the stuff was there. I'd, I'd never looked at it as a kid, but but it was there suddenly to be drawn on. And then I could have those conversations, you know, with my dad, uh, with my mum, uh, and and with my with my mum's partner as well. And at the same time, I guess growing up, we always knew. Well, I always knew that, you know, we were a family of of Jewish and Irish heritage as well. So so no doubt, you know, when all those years later, when Satnam suggested, why don't you think about anti-Semitism? Uh, it, it 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 kind of felt right. Uh, yeah. So I guess there's a, an academic and a and a biographical route up 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 to this point, and there's politics thrown in thrown in there as well too, of course. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so, just in terms of giving the listeners an overview of the book, um, you state in the introduction that you basically have two aims with the book. So, you're examining um, the complex. Uh, overlap between anti-Semitism and revolutionary politics in the Russian Revolution. And then you're also exploring Bolshevik uh, attempts to confront anti-Semitism, including within the revolutionary movement itself. Uh, So your book, um, it starts chronologically in 1917, um, but I wondered if you wanted to give us um, a bit more about that overview in terms of those two aims and also give us a bit of background, basic background on anti-Semitism and socialist responses before 1917. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. Those are the two kind of main aims of the book. And I guess I made the decision to to focus on this on this moment in kind of left and and Jewish history because 1917 presents a kind of extraordinary example of the mobilization of kind of class resentments and an extraordinary kind of mobilization of, of workers' power. And at the same time, this this explosion of 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 racialized resentment as well in the case of pogroms and anti-Semitic violence, and that provided a way for me to think about a really long-standing question, which I'd had all the way through my studies and still have today, which is how does the left respond to racism when it appears? close to home within the left itself. And the really extraordinary thing about the, the October Revolution is what what the revolution offers is not just emancipation from class exploitation, but also a kind of deliverance from the injustices of gendered and, and, and racialized domination as well. And it's the anti-racist promise of the revolution in many ways that reaches far and wide. And at the very beginning of, of the book, I begin with this quote from from the Jamaican black writer Claude McKay, who actually travels to Moscow uh, in, in the early 20s to take part in, in, the, in, in the Fourth Congress of, of the Communist International. And, and he writes, just before that time, he writes about what it was that attracted him to Bolshevism, and interestingly, it's this Soviet, it's the Soviet government's record of combating anti-Semitism, and he has this kind of wonderful formulation where he says something like Bolshevism's made Russia safe for the Jew, and it might make the the United States safe for us if only the the Russian idea kind of takes hold of the white masses. It might make black toilers from the U.S. and and in the Western world, and. What's so fascinating, I mean, this quote is actually fascinating in and of itself as a kind of multidirectional anti-racism that brings together, you know, the Russian Revolution, the Jewish Revolution and the Black Atlantic into one. But just leaving that to one side, what's so interesting about this moment is that just as McKay is putting pen to paper, you get this explosive wave of anti-Jewish violence in the former pale of settlement. So... And what we're talking about here is a kind of the most significant assault on Jewish life in pre-Holocaust world history. Certainly around 100,000 Jews are murdered, perhaps many, many more. So the Russian Revolution then is this moment of emancipation and liberation on the one hand, but for Jews is accompanied by racialized violence on a really quite unprecedented scale. And the book, I guess, drops in at this very moment. And tries to do, as you say, two things to kind of capture the nature of anti-Semitic violence as it manifested within the Bolshevik movement and the Red Army itself. And to really ask the question of why anti-Semitism appeared within this context. Why was it not just confined to the right, to the kind of counter-revolutionary right, to the czarist, restorationist movement, and so on and so forth, as we've come to think of anti-Semitism in the context of the Russian Revolution? Why could it also manifest on the left and overlap so powerfully with kind of certain 
elements of the revolutionary project. And then secondly, to ask a kind of additional question, which is, well, what did the Bolsheviks do about it? I mean, how did they handle the presence of, of anti-Semitism within, within the revolutionary movement? And not just kind of how, but who, as in who crafted the Bolshevik response to that anti-Semitism uh, when it appeared within the revolutionary movement. So, so yeah, those are the two kind of main threads of the book to capture anti-Semitism as it appeared within the Red Army, within the workers' movement, within even the party itself in certain locales, and then to try to draw out and make sense of the nature of the response to that anti-Semitism and all the complicated questions that that threw up, you know, about how a revolutionary government responds to anti-Semitism when it appears within the workers' movement. And, and you know, the, the second element to your question was about, you know, what's the backdrop to this? And of course, these weren't new, these weren't new problems. These weren't new manifestations. They, they, they had reached kind of unprecedented levels. But some of these debates had gone way back into the pre-revolutionary period. I mean, in the book, in the introduction, I give a little bit of a flavour of this. That there's a lot more to be said about about the late imperial period, and I certainly don't do it justice in the introduction to the book. But, you know, these these debates came up in 1881 in the first major uh, pogrom wave in Russia and Eastern Europe, where some of the populists, the Narodniki, not all, but some had kind of welcomed the pogromist movement as a kind of potential awakening of the people. And then what's unique, perhaps, about social democracy and the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks is that they break with this tradition and instead take a much more active and kind of unified opposition to anti-Semitism, especially when the next major wave of pogroms take place in 1903, 1905. Um, so, and what's particularly interesting about 1905, actually, and the work of Charles Wynne, really, uh, Charters Wynne, apologies, Charters Wynne, the, the, the work of Charters Wynne really brings this out powerfully, is that anti-Semitism wasn't just counter-revolutionary in the sense of you know, anti in in the sense of kind of being anti-Bolshevik or 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 pro or pro the autocracy. On the contrary, anti-Semitism could emerge within the workers' movement during during the 1905 revolution, particularly when the workers' movement had kind of failed to make gains. Where there was a kind of what when it would snap back. For example, around the May Day demonstrations. Sometimes there was a fear within the socialist movement that, that those could turn into pogroms. And then you have this extraordinary situation where Bolsheviks and Mensheviks are cancelling May Day demonstrations in 1905 out of fear that it could turn into a pogrom. So these contradictions, if you like, the contradictory nature of consciousness and so on, all of that predated the Civil War and the October Revolution. But what happens during the October Revolution and, and then in the immediate years afterwards, is that these questions kind of explode in unprecedented ways. Um, yeah, so it, it has a long history and the Bolsheviks weren't coming to this afresh in 1917. Yeah, I think that uh, stuff about the uh, socialists calling off the May Day demonstrations that they'd been sort of busily building for weeks and weeks. Um, it's just, yeah, really interesting. Um, so let's let's move into 1917. Uh, you talk about there was obviously uh, two revolutions in February and October. 
what happened after the February Revolution 1917 and what sort of alliances were being put together and how was anti-Semitism viewed mm. um, by those alliances? Well, the February Revolution is a kind of extraordinary moment in 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 the life of Russian Jewry. I mean, just literally, just days after the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, what happens overnight is that restrictions on Jews are lifted. And we're talking here about close to 150 statutes, certainly reaching over a thousand pages, are just removed overnight. And this is a this is really understood as a kind of moment of abolition. This is the abolition of state anti-Semitism. And it occurs actually on the eve of Passover as well. Uh, and there's there's a really a really lovely kind of anecdote in the Petrograd Soviet at this time where a, a Jewish delegate sort of stands up and addresses the meeting and says, this February revolution is comparable with the liberation of Jews from slavery in Egypt. I mean, and that really captures something about the scale of the transformation that was being undertaken. But of course, you know, the removal of statutes doesn't change the reservoir and the kind of culture of anti-Semitism that exists within Russian society and within political movements. And that takes a much, much longer time to confront and to come to terms with. And it's after February in particular that you begin to see a kind of acceleration of anti-Semitic sentiment and resentment in 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 Russian society. And What's particularly interesting for my book, at least, or for my interest in this, is the way that, that socialists, social democrats, and to an extent some liberals as well, come together to kind of address this emergency, which they identify as a kind of new pogromist moment, a new pogromist atmosphere, not just in the Pale of Settlement, but indeed in Petrograd and in Moscow as well. And that opposition to anti-Semitism really finds its its hub within the Soviet, this newly formed kind of political institution, which is not in opposition to the new provisional government, but has a potentially hostile relationship to it. You know, this is the notion of dual power, um, which is such an, a kind of important feature of the 1917 revolutions. But it's really the Soviet that begins to organise its increasingly mass membership to respond to anti-Semitism. And if you trace this throughout the year of 1917, you see two things. One is that anti-Semitism is conceptualized absolutely as counter-revolution, as an attempt to restore the autocracy, you know, and put the statutes back into the book, as it were. But through the ebb and flow of this, what becomes apparent through 1917 is the capacity for anti-Semitism to also manifest within the progressive movement, the movement of the Demokratia, the kind of alliance of various socialist organisations and the workers' movement more generally. And this is especially the case as you get towards the end of the year in 1917, as the crisis deepens and as the Bolsheviks begin to have a mass audience and as the, you know, in the crucial September and October days, it's in that moment really that you start to get this sense especially from the Bolsheviks' enemies who write about this repeatedly in the socialist press, they say that there is a capacity for anti-Semitism to manifest within within the workers' movement. So already by the time of the revolution, the Bolsheviks have a conceptualization of anti-Semitism 
as counter-revolution, which is a very legitimate conceptualization because there are, you know, the 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 counter-revolutionary movement is obviously anti-Semitic, but they also have to contend with this kind of emergent reality of anti-Semitism appearing close to home as well, and that contradiction and that political difficulty really comes into view after the Bolsheviks come to power in the former Pale of Settlement in the course of 1918 and in particular 1919. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah great so let's um yeah move to talk about that um your discussion of red army pogroms in um march and april of 1918 and then um continued uh anti-jewish violence um of the red army through 1919 as well uh so one of the things that i think is quite um, interesting and provocative about about what you talk about is um, talking about how in certain regions Bolshevik power was actually constituted through anti-Jewish violence. Um, so if you tell us about that and also uh, how you also talk about the emergence of a racialized conception of the revolution. Um, so yeah, so if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, cool. I think it's important to say, you know, just to add a kind of context to this, which is to say that the, the Red Army are the least prone to pogroms out of all military forces in the Russian Revolution. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a classic study done uh, in the immediate post-revolutionary moment by the Yiddish and Yivo scholar uh, Gergel, who kind of pulled together around data that, that, that allowed him to assess around 30,000 fatalities um as a consequence of pogroms. And he made an assessment that roughly 8 or 9% of all civil war pogroms were carried out by the Red Army. And, you know, in stark contrast to that, the vast bulk of the atrocities were carried out by the Petlura and Denikin armies, around 40 and 20% respectively. So when we talk about the phenomenon of anti-Semitism within the Red Army, you know, we need to understand that this is a, min- a minority current and that it doesn't represent the overarching pogrom wave, as it were. But the reason that I chose to zero in on that, you know, whether we call it 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12%, the reason I chose to, to zero in on that presence of anti-Semitism within the Red Army and the revolutionary movement is because of the kind of fundamental questions that it posed of the revolutionary project for the Bolsheviks, for most Marxists, and for anyone kind of who's committed to the idea of revolution today. 
because anti-Semitism really traversed the political divide in revolutionary Russia. Unevenly so, but it traversed it nevertheless. And what was absolutely astonishing to me when I walked into the archive and sat down was that I learned that anti when the Bolsheviks respond to anti-Semitism, they're not responding to an anti-Semitism over there, as it were, you know, on the counter-revolutionary right. That anti-Semitism is there, as we know, but that's not what they're responding to. What they're responding to is an anti-Semitism that had found traction within their own social base and, and, you know, an increasingly enlarged social base. I mean, we should remember that the Bolsheviks are a kind of tiny organization at the beginning of 1917 and, you know, around 13, 14 months later are presiding over, you know, huge territorial regions encompass you know tens of millions of people so <laughs> this is a radically different situation and what they find is that anti-semitism is there within their own movement and this really so the signs of it are there in 1917 as i mentioned a moment ago but it, it really comes into view in the spring of of the following year in 1918 in the in the northeast of Ukraine, in the Chernigov region, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, in the in the second chapter. But here, what you have is the first pogrom wave after the October Revolution, and it's not carried out by, you know, the 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 anti-Bolshevik counter-revolutionary military units that are stationed there, it's carried out by the local detachments of Red Guards, which are soon formed into the Red Army just weeks later. This is this is the early spring of nineteen eighteen and there's really one extraordinary example of this, which takes place in Gluchov, uh, which is a city in the Chernigov region, where basically the Bolsheviks come into the town, come into the city, and establish power under the slogan, smash the bourgeoisie, smash the yids. And there's kind of, there's testimonies and memoirs that show that when the Bolsheviks roll into town, they go from door to door asking, you know, where do all the Jews live? Where do all the yids live? And they basically take entire families into into the centre of the town and shoot them on the spot and then raise up the red flag under the slogan, Long live the international, which is a kind of extraordinary confluence between, you know, revolutionary politics and, in this case, murderous anti-Semitic violence. And this is not representative, obviously, of the entire Bolshevik movement in northeast Ukraine, but it's an element that's there in this moment. One other example um, is in is in is in Smolensk, where Red Army soldiers, you know, or are. are are organizing street protests demanding that Jewish commissars be removed from the Soviet. Or, for example, in Suraj, where the Bolsheviks come to power, and this is quite a striking example, the Bolsheviks come to power with 20 train carriages of soldiers from the 1st Cavalry in the name of Vladimir Lenin. And Lenin's cavalry, on arrival, you know, issues a call for all Jewish property to be destroyed. So once it rolls into town in Suraj. None of this is sanctioned by Lenin or anybody in the Bolshevik government. This is kind of revolution from below, as it were. And it's the messiness of revolution from below in this region, in this moment. And it's a kind of striking example of the way that anti-Semitism could manifest within within the Red Army and the revolutionary movement. And this provokes the Bolshevik 
or some within the Bolshevik government to try to do something about it, which we can maybe talk about a little bit later. But but yeah, all of this is a kind of precursor, really, to what happens the year after in in nineteen. 19, when the Bolsheviks come to power once again in Ukraine for the second time. And here, I mean, this this is really, in some ways, it's the heart of this section of the book, the, the section on kind of red anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism within the Red Army. Here, I, I went to Kiev a few years ago and sat down in the party archives and just looked at all the local reports sent to the party leadership about the Red Army across the whole of Ukraine, not just in the northeast, but every single area, every single region of Ukraine where the Red Army is stationed. And these reports are kind of sent two, three times a week throughout the year 1919. And in those reports, there's a little section on anti-Semitism because it's so prevalent. And if you go through them systematically, as I did, what you see is these internal kind of secret at the time Bolshevik reports are finding that anti-Semitism is present in every single province across the whole of the Ukraine, wherever the Red Army is stationed. It's present within the Red Army. And in some cases, the situation is kind of so severe that Bolsheviks who want to address this problem, Bolsheviks who want to respond to anti-Semitism, are just unable to do so because if they raise the issue, they're seen as being, you know, yid speculators, quote unquote, who will be kind of shot on the spot. And you you, you get this from one report. I really vividly recall seeing this in the archive. One report from the first Soviet army. Uh, in in Ukraine, which declares that you know anti-Semitism is so strongly developed, it's it's now the case that pogroms are an everyday occurrence. And one of the slogans that is repeatedly picked up in these reports, one of the slogans that is kind of articulated by these anti-Semitic elements within the Red Army, is "Smash the Yids, long live Soviet power." Smash the Yids, long live Soviet power, which just just leapt off the page when I saw it. So. You know, these lines of demarcation, if you like, between counter-revolution on the one hand and kind of internationalist revolutionary socialism on the other, actually they kind of collapsed in certain moments through the politics of anti-Semitism. And this was the messiness of the kind of, of the social field. This was the actuality of revolution in some regions that workers, Red Army soldiers moved between counter-revolution and, re- and revolution, move between kind of communism and anti-Semitism. So this this was the kind of, this is what one half of the book really tries to come to terms with, first to document it and then to kind of conceptualise it and try to make sense of it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really in the spring and the summer of 1919 that you see this kind of extraordinary wave of, of anti-Semitic violence and the Red Army absolutely play a role in that um and that 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 really is 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 chapter four and chapter five in the book that try to address that so the other significant part of your book is is really looking at the soviet government's response to this anti-jewish violence and more specifically you discuss how it was actually uh, different groups of non-Bolshevik Jewish radicals um, who drove much of the Soviet state response to anti-Semitism uh, in this period. So, yeah, tell us a bit yeah, about this. So, 
yeah, that, that, that you're absolutely right. That that's that's the second kind of question that I ended up having in the archives. And I should say that you know this wasn't all clear to me before I went into the archive. This is very much a kind of the focus of the book changed quite a bit in the course of sitting in those dusty rooms in in central Moscow in in in, in the party archive. And I I really recall one day sitting there going right well. I want to get Lenin's files and Trotsky's files and Zinoviev's files and see what they have to say about anti-Semitism. And, you know, I got given the the inventory lists for these huge, absolutely colossal archives and scrolled through them over like a kind of week to two week period and just basically found nothing, actually. I mean, I know, of course, of the famous gramophone speech that Lenin gave on anti-Semitism in, in early 1919. I know the famous Soviet decree in July 1918 signed by Lenin. That stuff has been long translated into English and is quite well known. But I wanted to know, get a much more kind of granular and everyday sense of what the Bolshevik leadership and what Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev and others were really doing about this issue of anti-Semitism. And actually, I didn't find that much. This was the really striking thing. And it was also a moment of panic. You know, I was in the very early stages of the PhD at the time, and it's that moment where you think, well, I, I don't have a topic anymore. <laughs> you know? Like it's kind of evaporated in front of my eyes. And I really have the archivist in in the Moscow Party archive, Misha, to thank, you know, who, who just came over to me and just dumped a file on my desk and said, look at these guys. And these were the Palyatsion, uh, the, 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 the Jewish Communist Party, Palyatsion um, organization. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not looking at them. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Soviet government. He said, no, no, you, you need to look at them. And that's when the project really actually started to open up in terms of the kind of archival work, because it was then that I came across, I mean, I knew of the, of, of the Jewish Commissariat, but the Jewish Commissariat came into the absolute centre of my study as the one crucial organisation for the early period after the revolution. And basically what I found is that the Jewish Commissariat the Jewish Department of the Soviet government is the is the organ within the early kind of nascent Soviet state that is leading the response to anti-Semitism. And it's the Jewish Commissariat in Moscow in particular, the kind of Moscow Regional Commissariat, which is which is playing the key role here. And just in case anyone isn't entirely sure what the Jewish Commissariat is, I mean the, the Bolsheviks set up right after the revolution a range of kind of special departments within the government to address a whole set of political questions around minority rights. So there's a Muslim section of the party, there's a Polish and Latvian section, and there's also a women's department as well, the Genotdel, which is perhaps better known than, than the Jewish Commissariat. So I ended up coming into the archives of these left Zionists and the Jewish Commissariat. And what's fascinating is that when you look at the work that the Jewish Commissariat did around responding to anti-Semitism in Moscow in early 1918, you find that there's not a single a single Bolshevik in that organisation. In fact, they're left Zionists, as Misha helpfully uh, explained, and as Svi Gittelman, of course, has done so as well in his work. And they were left Zionists and Jewish socialists of various sorts, but non-Bolsheviks. And they played a kind of absolutely crucial role in cultivating not an opposition to anti-semitism because that existed anywhere that 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 existed anyway they cultivated a kind of praxis an anti-racist praxis of actually responding to the issue on a day-to-day -day 
basis, kind of actualizing the response, actualizing the standpoint. So what we see then, I mean, and if you if, if you go through this material, you see that they write letters to Lenin, you know, Comrade Lenin, please, you know, we request that you put this on the agenda of the Soviet government. This is April 1918. Nothing happens. They they write to the Subnarcom, the Soviet government itself, and say, you know, can you please come up with a response to the red, and they point explicitly to the red anti-Semitism that is taking place in Chernigov, in Glukhov, as I mentioned earlier. And it's it's in response to the inactivity in the immediate sense of the Soviet government that they set up their own institutions, the Jewish Commissariat, to deal with anti-Semitism. And what they do is the kind of the dirty work of anti-racist praxis. You know, they're the ones writing pamphlets, delivering lectures, to workers' circles, setting up reading groups within the Red Army, establishing kind of adult education courses in universities uh, and in workplaces, all around really the specific issue of anti-Semitism as a dedicated kind of question of political education. So what, what that kind of led me to come to say in the book is that there is a Soviet response to anti-Semitism in 1918 in response to this red army anti-semitism but that response is not bolshevik in in origin and so the impetus of what we today might call a kind of anti-racist praxis emerges not from the central apparatuses of the soviet state but from its kind of non-bolshevik jewish periphery in the shape of the jewish commissariat um, which as i said is in moscow where this stuff is where this campaign has been led in moscow that commissariat is almost entirely non-bolshevik in terms of its political composition so that's really the first and, and actually this this story in some ways is replicated actually in the year 1919 when that when this when we have this next wave, major wave of anti-Semitism, which as I said a moment ago, it includes a kind of explosion of anti-Semitism within the Red Army as well. It's not until Bundists, in this case communist Bundists, and activists from the United Jewish Socialist Workers Party, enter the Soviet government in May 1919, that again a kind of much more extensive anti-racist, anti-anti-Semitism campaign is initiated. So yeah, so that 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 dis that discovery for me at least was one of the key findings of the book that that you have this opposition to anti-Semitism, which is long-standing, a kind of standpoint of opposition to anti-Semitism, but at the level of you know when you disaggregate that to the level of kind of agency and praxis, what you find is that it takes the the kind of catalytic role of non-Bolshevik Jewish revolutionaries who, who come into the Bolshevik government, who come in, who, who come over to the side of the Red Army. It's their kind of role that helps bring this from standpoint to actuality. And again, in 1919, there's a similar situation where they set up their own institutions within the Soviet government. They set up their own institutions for dealing with anti-Semitism, establish lectures within the Red Army, and, and really kind of cultivate the Soviet response to anti-Semitism. So in, in your final chapter, you discuss the intractability of anti-Semitism in the Russian Revolution and how Bolsheviks and, and Jewish communists um, remained caught in what you call the racialising bind of the Jewish question. Yeah, so maybe if you could tell us a bit about what, what happened to those anti-Semitic anti, anti 
anti-Semitism institutions um, that were built by the Jewish communists and, yeah, and also, yeah, tell us a bit about this, the racialising bind. Yeah, so just just to rewind a, a little bit, I think it's important just to say, I mean, to just say a little bit more about these individuals and their politics so that we can get to your question, which is, you know, which is the kind of impossibility of of exiting what was then called the Jewish question for these activists and indeed for the Bolshevik project itself. So, you know, when we look at the at the agency of these individuals who, who are, you know, the ones who, are, as I said, are kind of actualizing the Soviet response to anti-Semitism, what you find is that they're revolutionaries who really combine revolutionary agency with a kind of self identificatory Jewishness. And that could stretch across Yiddish Bundism to Marxist Zionism to various iterations in between. But the key thing that kind of captures this movement of Jewish revolution, non-Bolshevik Jewish, Jewish revolutionaries into the Soviet government is that they engage with the revolution as Jews. And so this is not the kind of assimilationist Bolshevism of, say, Trotsky or Zinoviev, who are really quite aloof from their own Jewishness, but really aloof from the kind of Jewish, Yiddish-inflected culture, political culture, that is so rich and that, that kind of brings the Bund, for example, to fruition in the course of the late imperial period. So th this, th this is a different kind of politics that comes into confluence with the early Soviet government and it's individuals who are kind of less traversed down that path of assimilation, less traversed down the path than say Trotsky and Zinoviev were. So for them it's a kind of, for for these Bundists and Marxist Zionists that move towards the Bolshevik project, it's this is this is the Soviet Jewish kind of interface if you like this is this is the soviet response to anti-semitism comes out of this new soviet jewish cultural and political project now what's important about that is at least in the context of my book is that they stretch marxism as it were to be more attentive to the question of ethnicity and and you know what we today might call race so that it had an equal status to that of class so this was a it was a universalism for sure, but it was a kind of universalism that was driven by a very kind of important particularism of being, you know, a Jewish revolutionary in a context of unprecedented anti-Semitism. And these individuals are born into the kind of post-1881 period and they're teenagers in 1905 and they've lived a life of kind of revolutionary upheaval, which has been overdetermined by the question of anti-Semitism in the course of their own lives. So when they come, and this is where I come to your question, you know, when when they come to engage with the revolution in 1917 as Jews, as I, as I said a moment ago, they confront a paradox, which is that this is absolutely a kind of Jewish moment. This is a revolution in Jewish life. This is what, you know, Andrew Sloyne, who I think was on your show, calls the Jewish revolution, right? Or and and Ken Moss calls it the in a, in a different way in a, in a different kind of direction calls it the Jewish Renaissance in the Russian Revolution, and yet the charge from anti-Semitism is that the revolution is a Jewish project. So Bolsheviks, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, are caught in a bind, and the bind is that anti-Semitism 
charges the revolution with being led by Jews and with being a Jewish, you know, th- this is what the, the, this is where the Jewish conspiracy has such force within the, the wider population, and yet they and yet they are responding to the revolution as Jews, so, and this throws up all sorts of complications and kind of impossible choices. So, for example. Marxist Zionists, the Palestinian, argue in 1919 in response to murderous anti-Semitism. They argue that we should set up Jewish units within the Red Army, because this will prove that Jews will fight on the front. And this provokes, you know, tremendous anxiety from the Manstein, the leader of the Jewish Commissariat and the Jewish sections in the party, who says actually no. On the contrary, this will reinforce the anti-Semitic stereotype that Jews, you know, stick together and are not an and are not, you know, integrated into the revolutionary movement as a whole. And it actually takes Trotsky in the end to give this the go-ahead that that Jews can indeed form Red Army battalions within, you know, to 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 lead the Jewish revolution, but also to confront anti-Semitism as well. And what that kind of one anecdote shows is that any step taken on this terrain can reinforce anti-Semitism, no matter every single political intervention that the Bolsheviks make in response to anti-Semitism has the capacity to actually reproduce and recultivate the issue anew. And this is the impossibility of the kind of of the bind that the Jewish Bolsheviks, non-Jewish Bolsheviks are in when they try to address anti-Semitism. The revolution for them is so overdetermined by the question of anti-Semitism that each step taken that each step taken risks actually perpetuating the issue. And there is a sense in which the in which in the context of the civil war that that there is nothing that can be done to try to exit the Jewish question. And 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 I guess that is what I call the racializing bind in the in the final chapter of the book, and just to sort of to 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 mention something about that chapter. One thing I found is that these individuals who who really lead the Bolshevik response to anti-Semitism, or rather the Soviet response to anti-Semitism, they too were capable of actually articulating themselves some of you know the most common anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jews as they engaged in this project of you know Soviet Jewish reconstruction to try and change the kind of class profile of Soviet Jewry to try and you know transform some of the economic practices that Jews were engaged in in those moments they too could you know could could rearticulate anti-semitism at, at, at the discursive level and also at the political level and these were the same individuals that led the campaign so this is part of kind of what i tried to get at in that last chapter of the book is is you know what you pulled out as the kind of racializing uh, the racialized bind brilliant so well thanks very much for talking to us about your book today brendan and um yeah as listeners have heard it really is a brilliant um and insightful study um so the traditional uh, new books question ending question is what what are you working on next? So next? at the moment, I guess there's three things I'm working on just now. One is a kind of long term project of trying to think about how we might theorise and rethink the place of anti-Semitism within the sociology of racism, and this goes back to you know something we discussed right at the start um, of this conversation. So that's a kind of 
yeah, that's a kind of sociological, theoretical kind of project, which I appreciate for some listeners may seem quite removed from everything we've just discussed. Um, the other ongoing project is with two colleagues at Birkbeck at the Pears Institute for the Study of Antisemitism, where I'm based. Um, I have a project with David Feldman, the Institute's director, and my colleague Ben Gidley, um, where we're looking at the issue of antisemitism and the British Labour Party in the contemporary period. And this has obviously been a subject of much controversy. So we've got some work coming out uh, in the next week or so around this. And yeah, we're looking at exploring this issue in the medium to long term as well. And then lastly, my former PhD supervisor, Satnam Verdi, who I mentioned a moment ago, Satnam and I are uh, are thinking about doing a book on on the nature of the contemporary crisis uh, in terms of race, class, uh, and and political economy and politics. So all of this at the moment is is actually um, removed from the question of the Russian Revolution, but I, which I do intend to return to that um, once these three things um, have been completed. Um, well, yeah, we certainly hope hope you do. But um, all those projects sound, yeah, extremely important and interesting. Um, but thanks very much uh, for being on the show, Brendan, and um, thanks for listening, um, listeners. You've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies uh, with your host Max Kaiser, and with us today we had Brendan McGeever, and he was talking to us about his new book. Anti-Semitism and the Russian Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press uh, in 2019. Thanks so much, Max. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to, 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 you know, to read the book in the first instance, and then to, yeah, and then to, to have me on your show to talk about it. Um, yeah, and I look forward to to reading your work as well and continuing the conversation. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.